shirt. And so I'm going to try to wear one. We'll be on this for probably about four Sundays, so I'm going to try to wear a different shirt. I think next week it's the Rams, and then we're going to do the blues, and then I think we're going to try to do Mizzou, and then we'll just go from there, okay? So if you want to wear your uh, wear, wear a shirt or something that one of the teams, feel free. Just don't wear a Cubs outfit in here, or, or, or we won't let you come to the service. All right, the goal, no, I'm teasing. The goal is to make all of us the best team players and champions that we can be for God. I've noticed over the last many years that not too many Christians are good team players. Um, a lot of people think Christianity is a individual sport like golf. You know, it's an individual sport now that you can have team events in golf. But a lot of people want to just be Lone Ranger Christians. But you need to realize the body of Christ and the church is a, is a team sport. You also need to realize your marriage is a team sport. You'd be surprised how many husbands and wives don't even like one another. <laughs> Did you hear what I just said? So they don't, they don't even like they don't even like each other. They just tolerate one another. You'd be surprised. I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens, probably into the hundreds over the last many many years that they don't even like each other. They they just tolerate each other. They're married. They've got kids, you know, and they've got to just stay together for the kids more than anything. They don't even like one another. Uh, you know, marriage is a team sport, so maybe some of the things we say here over the next several weeks will help your marriage. Family, you know, if you've got, a, got children, you know, that, that's, that's a team. So you need to, to listen carefully. Some of this stuff might be able to help you. Now, in 1992, the U.S. Olympic basketball team had Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing. Now, if you don't know who those people are, those were some of the best basketball players of all time. They were on the same team. And it was called the Dream Team. And no opponent could even come close to beating them. When they'd play, they'd win each of their games by better than 40 points a game. And, uh, you know, uh, it'd be nice to have the Dream Team. Uh, you know, in every sport that I've ever ever dealt with that had a, had a team concept, you know, at some point somebody's talking about the Dream Team. They've even done it with the St. Louis Cardinal baseball team, you know, back over the last many years. Who was the best first baseman? You know, if we could put them at first, and then, then what is it? Who, who's on first? Let, let's don't do the Abbott Costello thing. But you know, and, and the fielders and the catchers. You know, who was the who was the best Cardinal first baseman, second baseman, shortstop, third baseman, so on. So you could put each of those people in at, uh, at at that position that they were the best at. You would have the dream team. Well, God wants each and every one of us to be the best we can be for him and as part of a church part of a now if you're not part of a local church you need to realize you're out of, you're out of the will of God did you hear what i just said god has a local church for everybody everybody he has a local church for and you need to find out where that is and you need to go there and hook in and be a part and uh, then he wants you to be the best player on that team that you can possibly be to make you part of god's dream team now you need to listen to this. If you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. This is really, really good. This came out of Tony Cook's book. I, I, I'm not smart enough to think of this, but, but have you ever noticed things are right before you a lot of times and, and they're there and you, you, I mean, you realize it. Once somebody says it, you realize it, but you never thought about it. Did you, did you get what I just said? I mean, you run across a truth that you, you, yeah, you realize it, but you never really stop to think about it. Here, listen to this. When God wants to do something in the earth, 
He always starts with a leader and endeavors to finish with a team. He always starts with a leader and endeavors to finish with a team. God doesn't call a board of deacons. He doesn't look for a group of people to start. So he always, if you look through the Bible, think about it. He always finds a person, a leader, and then he'll put people with that leader. And God starts with a leader and he endeavors to finish with a team. Think about Moses. He had Aaron and Hur and Joshua and Caleb. David had his mighty men. Paul had Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, and Titus. But see, God started with Paul, and then he added to him Barnabas, and then Silas, Timothy, Titus. Even Jesus, think about him, our Lord and Savior. He started by himself, and then eventually he had 12 disciples, didn't he? And then eventually he had 70. Remember that? Then on the day of Pentecost, there was 120. And then shortly after that, there was 3,000. And then sometime after that, there was 5,000. And the point is, is that God starts with an individual and then he adds to that individual. He starts with a leader. He endeavors to finish with a team. Now, you also need to realize that when people start out, for example, Jesus, when he started out, he had those 12 disciples, you need to realize that those 12 disciples were not dream team players when they started. You need to realize that. How many of you realize that the disciples were not dream team quality when they started by any stretch? Let me read this. I'm going to be reading from this book just a little bit here. And uh, just listen to this. Um, let, let me read this. Now, also, too, I want to tell you this. Michael Jordan. You, do you know who Michael Jordan is? You've heard of him. He's one of the, probably the greatest basketball player of all time. Do you know when he started out, he was originally not able to make the varsity squad on his, uh, on his basketball team. He was put on the junior varsity team. But, you know, he developed and he became known as one of the greatest basketball players, if not the greatest of all time. You need to realize that not everybody starts out as dream team type of people. Let me just read this. The members of the 92 dream team were all superstars, yet the members of the dream team that Jesus assembled were all completely ordinary. They were common people with regular lives. They had not distinguished themselves as great philosophers, scholars, orators, or achievers. Scripture makes no attempt to glamorize these 12 men. Instead, we see them in all of their raw humanity. As, as Jesus was training them, Jesus noted that on occasion they were slow learners, spiritually dense, they lacked faith and understanding and had, had hard hearts, and they were fearful and full of unbelief. We're talking about the 12 disciples here when they started out with Jesus. The disciples ultimately became a great team through their association with Jesus and by the influence of the Holy Spirit. But they had to overcome problems common to all. Inferiority, pride, jealousy, foot-in-mouth disease. Has anybody ever had that disease beside me? One guy told me one time, I just need to open my mouth and change feet, you know, because I always had my foot in my mouth. But they, they had to overcome doubts, fear, failure, and so forth. They even, think about this, 
I'm talking the 12 disciples, they even slept through some of their most crucial times of training. But Jesus, the captain of our, the captain of our salvation, saw beyond their faults and recognized their potential. He didn't see them only as they were, but he also envisioned all that they could become. Jesus looked beyond the clumsiness and impulsivity of Peter and saw an empowered preacher. Jesus saw more than a rambunctious, tur- the rambunctious turbulence of John. He saw the apostle of love. Jesus acknowledged the checkered past of the woman at the well, but he also saw a transformed testifier. And Jesus looked beyond the rage of Saul of Tarsus and saw a church builder and an epistle writer. One of the main lessons from the lives of the original 12 disciples is that if God can use and develop them, he can use and develop us. And uh, that should be helpful to all of us because sometimes people think they're not good enough for God to use. But if God can use those 12 disciples, he can use you and me. Have you ever heard of the Bad News Bears? Has anybody ever heard of that baseball team? And they were pretty bad, weren't they? Weren't they pretty bad? Does anybody remember the Bad News Bears, that little little league team from the 70s? I think it was. They made a movie about that. And they were just worse than bad. They were horrible. They lost every game. But what was the coach's name? Mr. Uh, coach uh, Buttermaker, wasn't it? He came in there and, and uh, he took that horrible team over, Bad News Bears, and he made a winning team out of them. So, uh, you know, when you look at a team, you have to have a good you have to have a good captain. You have to have a good leader, but you also have to have some good team members. Did you hear what I just said? Some good team, some people that want to cooperate and people that want to get better. You know, you know, I, I've noted this about people over the years. There's just a whole lot of people they don't want to change. They're not going to change. They're never. They, they they're just not going to change. Now, I tell you what, I, I have a lot of faults, but there's one thing that I am pretty good at is when there's a problem, I'm pretty good about looking at myself. See, I've seen a lot of pastors over the years when, when there's issues and things, they always want to blame everybody else. I think that what you have to do as a leader when things aren't going so good is you have to look at yourself first. You have to look at yourself first. I remember uh, dealing with a pastor years ago. Whenever something went wrong in his church, he always blamed everybody else, but he didn't realize that a lot of the problem was, was himself. You have to, as a leader, you have to start looking at yourself. But I've also learned, too, that once the leader has looked at themselves and has done everything that they can do to make the situation better, I've also learned that a lot of times the people on the team, they don't want to change, they don't want to get any better. And, and that, that's a problem. That's a problem. So all you can do is look at yourself. Now, notice here, as God chooses his team, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to read this in the Message Bible. It'll be on the screen up there. God is going to choose his team. How many of you remember back to uh, junior high or high school? elementary school, junior high, high school, when there was, you were in gym class and there was time to uh, pick the team, to choose the team. Does anybody remember that? How many remembers that? It was time to choose a team. You were in gym class and you were going to choose up sides and the gym teacher would come out and, and uh, he would pick, you know, a fella 
here and a fella here, and now you choo choose up sides. Does anybody remember that? How many rem remembers that? Remember that? And, uh, you know, I was always a, a, a pretty good athlete, and so that never scared me because I was usually picked to be one of the captains. But, you know, that was a scary time for a lot of people, particularly the people that weren't very good at sports. It was, a, it was a scary time for them because the dreaded thing was that you would get picked last. Are you, you know what I'm saying? Does anybody, can anybody, you get picked last, you know? That was, that was a, a scary thing. And what I did, and, and I think it was just the Lord on the inside of me, what I always did is, is I would start out by picking the worst people. You know why I did that? Because I, 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 I just felt compassion for them. And so I'd pick the worst people. And bless God, we'd go on a lot of times and win anyway, you see. And, uh, but you know, it's, things are, it's more than winning. It's about helping somebody to not feel bad. Did you hear what I just said? And so when God chose his team, he did the same thing. Well, that's where I got it from. Let's read here. Do we have 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 in the Message Bible? Let's read this. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. It's talking about, you know, into the, thing, the life of God. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chose those, these nobodies to expose the hollow present, uh, pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get, uh, that makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. But the point is, is that when God chose members of his team, he didn't always choose the A, the a team or, the, or the, the, the top flight people. He typically uses nobodies. He typically uses outcasts. He typically uses, and, and you can see that in his disciples. He didn't go choose the brightest and the best. He chose some of the most unlikely people, but he chooses people, and if they'll work with him, then he can make champions out of them. Um, as you look at the Bible, probably the greatest team in all of the Bible is God himself. Now, how many, how many gods are there? There's one God, but he's manifest in how many different persons? Three. One God, three distinct persons, the Father the Son, the Lord Jesus, you know, and the Holy Spirit. I don't understand how all that works. But there's one God. He's manifested himself in three distinct persons. And as you study the scripture, you see that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, is the greatest team of all. The greatest team of all. They work, the, the Trinity works together as a perfect team in complete unity. You see this, and we could look up all the scriptures, but you, you can do that as an assignment in creation, at Jesus' baptism, in Jesus' ministry, in, in the redemptive work, you see the Trinity working in complete 
and total unity at all times. Never ever do we see the Trinity out of unity. Uh, let me read here from uh, from the book here. Page, if you have this book, it's going to be on page 28 and 29. Listen to this. Every member of Team Trinity, when, when we say Team Trinity, who are we talking about? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Is everybody okay with that? All right. Every member of Team Trinity is fully invested in the process and the goal. No one is a spectator or an observer. Everyone, talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a role and a function. There's no jealousy, strife, or discord in the Trinity. No member possesses a secret personal agenda. Their work, talking about God's work, the Trinity, their work is seamlessly interdependent upon each other. It truly is, as the motto of the three musketeers, one for all and all for one. And that's a total picture of unity. And unity is perhaps the most important trait in having a successful team. Jesus said that he does nothing unless he sees the Father do it. Also, look at John 16, 13. John 16, 13. John 16, 13. While there, that's going to be in the New King James Version. John 16, 13. Notice... Um, We'll just wait for him to get it over to the New King James. You can read it up there. I'll read it off of my thing here. It's easier for me to see. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth, for he'll not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He'll glorify, uh, he will glorify me, for he'll take of what is mine, declare it to you. All things the Father have are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine, declare it to you. We didn't look the scripture up, but Jesus doesn't do anything unless he sees the Father do it. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. So you need to think about this. Before the Trinity acts on anything, before they act on anything, do anything, you always see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit working together, planning the thing out before they do it. Do you know how many times we've seen husbands and wives over the years they don't communicate very well. They, they, they don't communicate very well. The, 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 the husband doesn't know what the wife's doing. The wife doesn't know what the husband's doing. They don't talk about things. They don't communicate. And it's a lack of unity. You'll never have a dream team marriage if you do not communicate. Now, that's one thing. That, there's a lot of things I don't have. But one thing I do have is a dream team marriage. I have the best marriage that, that there's ever been. And uh, my wife and I, we talk. We communicate. We communicate. We talk. We talk about things before we do them. Particularly, you know, major, major things. We talk about them. We, we communicate. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a form of unity. If you don't have communication, you're never going to have a dream team. Ever. You've got to communicate. It's, it's a sign that there's unity there. Um, and you see, Jesus wants us to operate in unity. Look at John 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20. Again, New King James Version. John 17, verse 20. Notice Jesus prayed for us when he was here upon the earth. He prayed for us as, as members of hopefully a dream team. Notice what he prays here. 
John 17, 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for us because all of us came to believe in Jesus if, if we've placed our faith in him. Uh, we've come to this place as a result of the words of the, that the disciples got from Jesus and passed on down through the, through the Bible. He says, here's what he's praying, here's what he's praying, that verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That's talking about unity there. That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one that the, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What's Jesus praying here for us? He's praying that we would be in unity. That we, in, that we would be in unity. Now, you know as well as I do, we're not ever going to agree on every last little bitty thing. But how many of you know you can disagree without being disagreeable? Is that right? Is that right? You can disagree without being disagreeable. And uh, now on the essential things of the Bible, we have to be in total and complete unity. But like, like, for example, on the teaching of the end time events, you know, we could disagree on some of those things and still get along just fine. Is that right? But, uh, but we need to be in unity. You'd be surprised... How many churches don't operate in unity? They don't operate in unity. Now, we have less people in the church now than we've ever had. I, but there, back in those days when the room was full, the room was full. But, beloved, let me tell you something. There was so much discord and so much and, and backbiting. And the, sometimes the atmosphere when I come in here, it was just, it was just toxic. It was just ugly. I'm talking in the... You, you know, you can sense atmospheres. You, you, I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Or, I mean, it was so toxic and ugly and nasty. And I work with those people and I work with people. And so most of them all over the years, they, they left. Now, less people than we've ever had. But you know what? When you, It's sweet to come here now because there's not a bunch of backbiting and ugly talking and all that garbage going on. Can anybody say amen? You could actually get... Did you know you can get more done with less people in agreement than you can with a bunch of people that are all fighting and fussing with one another? Now, did you, did you get what I just said? I'm going to say that again. You can get more done, because I don't want you to miss this now, you can get more done with less people that are in agreement than you can with a lot of people that are fighting and fussing and talking bad about one another all the time. Did you get, did you get what I just said? Do I need to say that again? Because I want you to... You can get more done with fewer people that are in agreement than you can with a whole bunch of people that are fighting and fussing and backbiting one another and talking bad about one another. Did you hear what I just said? Plus the atmosphere is just, it's a, lot, it's just a lot nicer. Now everybody on a team is important. I said everybody on a team is important. And this is something that the devil will come to folks a lot of times and feed thoughts in their heads and tell them, well, I'm just one person. I'm not important. Everybody's important. Brooks Robinson, who was a third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles, he said this. He said, 
to make a ball club a champion, the effort has to start with the bat boy and move right up to the owner. How many of you know the bat boys are important too? Sure they are. And that's one thing I've seen as a kid. I I, I used to watch this growing up. Boy, I just hated it. Still hate it to the day. Where certain people in the church were treated better than others. I think everybody needs to be treated equally. I, I don't care what they're doing. I mean, you know, everybody should be treated equally and with respect. Because there's not one person that's more important than anybody else. You understand that? Much we could say about that. Now, you see in the Bible that unity is so important. We see it, and we could look the scriptures up, but I've got so much stuff here, and I don't want to keep you too long. Um, But the Tower of Babel, remember the Tower of Babel? Remember the people all had a common language just back in the Old Testament? And remember what God said about them? And you can look it up sometime in the book of Genesis. It's the 11th chapter. But they were all with one accord and they had a common language. But they were, they were working together to do something that was not in line with what God wanted done. But there's an interesting thing. It says in the Bible that they were in agreement to the point that they were in such unity to the point that God himself said nothing would be impossible for them. And so he came down and he confused their language. Well, why did he do that? Doesn't God want them in agreement? Well, yeah, God wants us in unity, but not if we're doing something that is out of his will. And that's why he had to come down and confuse their language. But I often thought that if if ungodly people can get together and be in agreement and accomplish something out of the will of God, how much more could Christians come together get in agreement, and accomplish something that's in the will of God, you see. Now, you see in the book of Acts, when did you see the most power in the book of Acts? When the church was in, real loud say, one accord. When the church was in one accord, when they were operating in unity. And uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, 1 Corinthians 1.10, New King James Version, 1 Corinthians 1.10, he said this, I plead with you. Now, Paul, pleading. He said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, why does Paul say that to the church? He says it to the church. Why does he say it to the church? Because he knows that if the church will stay together in unity that will be powerful and will be able to accomplish what God wants us to do. It's interesting if you did go to Isaiah 41 verse 6, Isaiah 41 verse 6 in the New Living Translation, in the New Living Translation will be up on the screen. Isaiah 41 verse 6, New Living Translation. Look at this, Isaiah is speaking here about idol makers. People that made idols, now that's not a good thing. They shouldn't have been doing that, but but notice this. He said, the idol makers encourage one another, saying to each other, be strong. The carver encourages the goldsmith. The molder helps at the anvil. Good, they say, it's coming along fine. Carefully, they join the parts together, then fasten things in place so it won't fall over. Now, listen, if idol makers can do this to one another, encourage one another, how much more should we as members of God's team, 
be encouraging one another and lifting one another up. If the idol makers can say, hey, good job, way to go, be strong, man, hang in there. If they can do that to one, to one another, how much more should we be doing that to one another? We ought to be encouraging one another. I know there was, uh, there was one, I don't have his name now, but one of the, uh, I think it was a basket, basketball great from years gone by, they were interviewing him one time and they were asking him, you know, about his abilities and all of that. And he said, you know what I try to do? He, say, he said, I try to make other players on the team the best that they can be. And when I do that, then I know I'm doing the best that I can do. And that's what we should be doing, all of us, is we should be encouraging one another, lifting one another up, saying, hey, good job, way to go, you know, that kind of stuff. And so if you haven't been doing that, start doing that. Your job as a member on God's team is you should be making everybody a better Christian that you come in contact with. Did you get what I just said? You should be making everybody the best that they can be. And, and I, I, I'll say this, that I agree with what that sports great said. I, I, I don't know who, who it was that said that. It was one of the uh, greats of the past. But I got it out of Tony Cook's book. But he said, yeah, that's what I do. I try to make... Everybody else on the team, the best that they can be. And uh, I tell you what, if we did that, I think I think the team, the team would be a lot better off. God's team. Um, let's see. Now, as we move on here, just a little further, they've got a little thing back there called champions that I, ho- I hope they'll be able to put up on the screen. And there it is. And Tony Cook talked about champions and to be a champion there's several things that are involved we've been talking about unity but also there's composure humility authenticity motivation persistence interdependence obscurity notability strategy we'll be talking about these things as we go go along over the next couple of weeks Uh, and if you want to be a true champion for God you're going to have to have these things going on in your life. So let's start with composure. Let me preach on just a little bit longer here, and then and then we'll stop and, and pick up next week. But let's try to at least get through composure. Uh, composure means this, keeping one's cool under pressure. Keeping one's cool under pressure. Have you ever seen anybody lose their temper? Huh? It's an ugly thing, isn't it? Branch Rickey, most of you probably don't know who who he is, but he was a baseball executive many years ago, and he signed Jackie Robinson, I believe it was, to the Dodgers. And Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And when Branch Rickey was out looking for, he needed a talented player, which uh, Jackie Robinson was. But he needed something else in Jackie Robinson besides just good baseball talent. And here's what Branch Rickey was looking for, and he said this to Jackie Robinson. Because he knew that Jackie Robinson was going to get a lot of slurs thrown at him and a lot take a lot of verbal abuse unfairly. And he said this to Jackie Robinson. He said, I'm looking for a player with enough guts To not fight back. 
In other words, he was saying, I'm looking for a player that has composure. You know it takes more guts to not fight back than it does to fight back? You know it takes more guts to not return a slur when somebody throws one at you? If you're going to be a champion for God, you're going to have to have composure. In the book here, Tony Cook told a story. I, 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 it was, I think you'll enjoy this. It's very interesting. Listen to this. In one World Cup final, two European teams were playing the championship match, and the game ended in a 1-1 tie. In overtime, one player trash-talked the star player of the other team and insulted his sister. The recipient of the verbal abuse lost his cool, head-butted the opposing player in retaliation, and was ejected from the game. With the star player expelled, the team was at a disadvantage and ended up losing the game. Think about that. Composure. And that guy probably trash-talked his sister on purpose to try to get him to lose his composure, and then he did something that he shouldn't have done, and it cost him to lose the game. I remember we were down at a Cardinal baseball game. We don't go to very many of them, but we were down there one year, and somebody had given us tickets, and we were just a few rows up off of the visiting team at Bush Stadium. We were just a few rows back from the dugout of the visiting team. And uh, when, when the visiting team was coming off the field, I could hear some of the Cardinal fans down there they were saying all kinds of bad stuff to some of these, these players. I mean, they were trash-talking them. They were trash-talking their mom. They were calling their mothers things that they shouldn't have been calling. I mean, it was just horrible. And I was thinking, you know, if that was me down there, I'd get a bat and come up into the, you know, and, well, that's what I was thinking. But you know what? Those, those guys didn't do a thing. They just went in. I remember one guy, I can't remember his name, but... They really got on him, and they gave him a hard time, and they called him and his mom every kind of name you could imagine as he was coming off the field. And you know what he did? He went up there, he got up to bat, and the guy hit a home run. And I was thinking, well, good, that's the right way to retaliate. I said, that's the right way to retaliate, isn't it? Let me just read some of these. Rudy Giuliani, does anybody know who he is? He was the mayor of New York City on 9-11. He said this, we're talking about composure. Rudy Giuliani's father told him, when he was a little kid, he taught him, remain calm in the midst of a crisis and you'll be able to figure your way out of it. See, on 9-11, the mayor needed composure, didn't he? How many of you remember George Bush? Now, you may agree with him or disagree with him. I agree with some of what he did, not all of what he did, but that's beside the point. But on 9-11, remember he was in an elementary classroom down in Florida and he got the report that a second plane had gone in to the World Trade Tower. Remember that? And, and I remember the president, he sat there calmly. And you know, we really, we, we, we really needed that. People criticized him for that. Well, he should have got up. When, uh, no, he was in with a bunch of little kids. He needed to sit there. He needed to think about what he was doing. He, 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 he was a champion that day. He kept composure. And they asked him later why he did that. And he said that he had learned that that, uh, you know, that if the leader starts acting, you know, panicking and going crazy, that it's probably going to spread throughout the country. And so he was very calm that day 
and that was good. Uh, do you remember uh, when that uh, flight, that miracle on the Hudson, remember that where that they landed out there? How many remembers that? And now when, when, the, when that jet took off and they hit those birds, remember the captain of the, of the, of the jet, his name was Sully Sullenberg? Now, were the people on the plane going to be better off if the captain was going, Oh my God, we're going to crash. What are we going to... Or would they have been better off? Because some of them complained that he didn't say very much to them over the intercom. Well, you know why he didn't say very much to them over the intercom? He was working the problem trying to land that plane. Now, how many of you, if you were on that plane, you would rather have him not talking to you, calm in the cockpit trying to land it? Huh? Or would you rather have him up there freaking out and come out of come out of there running up and down the aisles on on the loudspeaker saying, "Oh my God, we're all going to die"? Now, which would you rather have, somebody calm or somebody losing their cool? I've actually met people over the years that would probably have complained because he landed them on the Hudson and they had to get out on the water. They why couldn't he have found a highway to land them on? I've actually met people that are you know some people are just ungrateful, aren't they? But that's beside the point. The point is you want somebody that will stay calm and work the problem. Remember Apollo 13? Remember that went, went awry and they had somebody, Gene Krantz was his name, and he was the director. And I think he was the one that said failure is not an option. But remember he stayed calm and he said, let's work the problem. I tell you what, when things go awry, and they will because we live in this world here, we need to have leaders that are going to stay calm and cool in the midst of turmoil. And we need team members that are going to stay calm and cool and keep their composure in the midst of turmoil, you see. Um, now, composure does not mean that you have to be passive or weak or not take action. Listen to Walt Fra- what Walt Frazier said. He was a great basketball player. He was playing in a game one time. And an opposing team member uh, hit him on the back of the head. Just popped him one while they were playing. And you know what he did? He went out and he scored eight baskets in a row right after that. Kind of like that guy there at uh, the ballpark that he went out. They trash-talked him and he went out and hit that home run. Walt Frazier said this. He said, I retaliate with my game, not with my fists. Remember when John the Baptist was murdered and word came to Jesus? Jesus didn't retaliate by going and getting those people that murdered John the Baptist and yelling and screaming at him. Do you know what Jesus did? He went out and healed the sick. See, he, he, he retaliated against the devil's kingdom by going out and healing the sick. You know, there are some Bible characters who lost their composure. Moses, do you remember? He got mad at the people. He got mad at... There they have a captain. And the people, he got mad at the people. Have you ever seen a captain of a team get mad at his, his team? I remember when I played Little League on the Little League Baseball, there was a high ridge team, and they won every game. And this guy, I remember, he'd always jump up and down. And when his guys were scoring and he'd jump up and down, he was, he was the captain or the manager of the team, Little League, High Ridge. They won every game. And he'd just always jump up and down. And, 
you know, when the kids at school, and they beat us like 22 to 2 or something like that. You know. But we got a good manager, a new one. Sometimes you, didn't, you need a new manager. And, and we got a new manager, and he came in, and he changed some stuff. And uh, I remember he said, I'll never forget this. He looked at me, and he said, because I was loafing off when I was practicing, he looked at me and he said, boy, he said, the way you practice is the way you're going to play. I want 110% when you're practicing because if you won't give me 110% when you're practicing, you won't do it when, when we're playing. And that really affected me. He also told me, he said, just because you've always been the catcher on this team doesn't mean you're always going to get to be the catcher. He said, you're going to have to improve on some stuff or you're not going to be the catcher anymore. Well, I've always been the catcher. Well, I needed that guy in my life. You don't get to be the catcher just because you've always been the catcher. You've got to improve on some some stuff. And he helped me. Boy, he helped me get my arm strong where I could throw throw the runners out at second base and throw them out at third base when they try to steal. But this high ridge manager, boy, he just... Anyway, we came came along there and uh, that next season, and we just... I mean, we started winning every game, and, and, and we got up against High Ridge, and we beat that team. I'll never forget it. Sweet day in my life when we beat that team. And I'll never forget this same guy that was jumping up and down. He changed. He was different. He was screaming at those kids and yelling at those kids. And he, and he got on his son. He said, I'm ashamed of you. He said, blah, blah, blah. And I remember he picked up the water, the water cooler and he threw it up against the, the fence there, you know. Well, he lost his cool, didn't he? I've seen, I've seen Christians of large... I'm talking leaders of large organizations, Christians. I've seen them lose their cool on the athletic field, whatever the sport was. I, I, I've, I've seen tennis rackets thrown. I've seen, I've seen one guy kicking, the, kicking the, the chairs, you know. You lose your cool. I'm thinking of one time, I'm going to tell this story, this one particular leader of an organization, he, uh, he had the gym, he owned, he, his ministry owned this gym, and his team, his church team was playing against this other team, and uh, he was there watching, and his team was, it was a close game, and the referee made a bad call, or at least he thought he made it, the, the, this leader thought he made a bad call, and so he lost his cool, and he went off on a referee. And the referee threw this guy out. He had to leave the gym. And so this guy stopped. He said, you can't throw me out of here. I own this place. But the referee threw him out anyway. That's really hilarious if you, if you think about it. Really, if you can't laugh at that, then there's something wrong with you. There really, really is. I said, that's funny, don't you think? It'd be like if somebody came up here and tried to throw me out of here. You can't throw me out. I'm the pastor. I started this from scratch, you know. Thank you. <laughs> you, you get how funny that is? But I've seen, I've seen Christians that you'd think they as mature lose their cool. Moses, did he lose his cool? 
Yeah, he struck the rock twice. Peter got so mad in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took the spear and cut off, or the whatever it was, and cut off the guy's ear. Remember that? And I don't think he was aiming for his ear either. I think he was aiming, you know, the guy probably just ducked. James and John wanted to call down fire. Paul called the high priest a whitewashed wall. Did Paul ever lose his temper? Yeah. Tony Cook said, we'll close with these few statements. Here's what he said. He's a great minister. Here's what he said. Composure exists when your purpose and priorities are bigger than you and they're bigger than your pressures and your problems. Composure exists when your purpose and priorities are bigger than you and bigger than your pressures and problems. He further said, people with composure see the bigness of what they are called to do as bigger than the pettiness of all that would distract them from filling that high purpose. And here's what he personally taught me. He, he, there, was, there was a time where somebody did something to me that really wasn't good. And, uh, and, and I haven't had too many problems with this over the years, but, uh, but this person did something to me that just was really, really not good. And it, I was very angry about it. And I actually had to call Tony Cook on that one. I had to go to the bat phone. Does anybody know what the bat phone is? From the 60s? From the 60s how many remembers that? The bat phone. Whenever Gotham City was in trouble and the Commissioner Gordon would have to go to the bat phone. You know, I've had people who would actually not come back to church because I referred to the bat phone. It's their loss. I don't care. If, if you have trouble with that, well, he talked about the bat phone. <laughs> I had somebody leave one time because I mentioned the Wizard of Oz. My God. How many's ever seen the Wizard of Oz? I mean, <laughs> my God. Some people, you just, you're better off without them, aren't you? But anyway, it just makes me so angry. You can't even, some people, you can't even put a Christmas tree up. They get aggravated with that. You know, I mean, my God, help us. There's nothing wrong with putting up a Christmas tree, just as long as Jesus is the reason for the season. Can somebody say amen? So anyway, I had to go to the bat phone. So I went to the bat, called Tony Cook. And I said, these people have done thus and so to me. What am I going to do? I'm so mad. I can, I'm spitting cotton. What do I do? And here's what he said. He said, don't let someone else's carnality bring out your carnality. And this, no, no, it wasn't anybody here at the church that did anything to me. It was something else. But I was angry, and I was going to retaliate. <laughs> actually, actually, somebody, well, I won't get into it. I was going to tell you what it was. I'm not going to tell you. Don't let someone else's carnality bring out your carnality. Well, actually, what it was is a family member put it, I have to tell you anything. They put up some signs on me that I did. They did something they, that they thought I did and I didn't. But they got mad at me, family. They put up some signs, <laughs> and they didn't even spell the words right. You know, they didn't spell them right. And uh, and so I was going to put up my own signs. You know, to reach isn't next door. Neighbor. I won't get into it all. But and so uh, I was I was angry and I was going to put up my own signs. But I was going to put up some decent ones that, with proper spelling on it. If I'm going to call them names, at least I'm going to spell the words correctly, you know. This, some of this stuff is funny. Looking back at it, it's really funny. 
So I was going to put up some professional-looking signs with proper spelling, you know, retaliating. Because <laughs> they had put up some signs where they just got the paintbrush, and, and I was going to have the sign maker up here put up some, de- <laughs> some decent signs. <laughs> I'm just as human as you are, you know. And so I called Tony Cook, and he said this. I'll never forget. He said, don't let someone else's carnality bring out your carnality. And cause you to descend to their level. And then he said this. He said, anyone that is mature and knows you will understand that what they are doing does not reflect on you, but is a reflection of what's on the inside of them. Oh, and that helped me. And so I told Diane, call the sign company and tell them not to make the sign. No, no, I, I had really not got that far along, but I was headed that way. Did you get anything out of this? I don't know if this helped you or not, but it, it was fun nonetheless. We'll pick up here next week and we'll say some more. Hey, stand up with me, if you would. Don't forget.